to you. Exodus chapter 4 this evening. So we make our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God uh, has called Moses to be his deliverer, his human instrument that he is going to use to deliver the children of Israel uh, from their bondage in Egypt. And uh, by the time God comes to Moses and calls him to do this, surely in Moses' mind, uh, God is fully 40 years late on all of this. He really isn't interested in the position. I don't know uh, how many of you can relate to that kind of thing where you think, you know, I had, I, God, I did have a prime. <laughs> and, and you you fairly well missed it. And then now you show up now and I, I'm kind of pretty well content with with my life uh, on this and it wasn't that he was you know covetous or anything like this he's herding his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of a desert but he's just really done all the things that he had uh, hoped that he might be to his people and uh, all the dreams that he might have had related to God's use of him uh, those things that they long ago died in his heart they're they're buried and he really isn't interested in resurrection at, at this point so as God calls him he meets God's calling with a series of objections or a series of excuses for why God has the wrong person. We saw the first two excuses last week when we were together there in chapter 3 verse 11 and he said to the Lord who am I <laughs> that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and God spoke to him very graciously and said this is not about who you are it's not about you Moses we do tend to think that it's about us and uh, it's not a, about what you and you aren't it's about what I am and I'll be with you which is the guarantee of success then we hardly get three verses down in, in verse 13 and then Moses raises a sec, second objection uh, to to the Lord and uh, when I go to the leaders of the children of Israel they're going to ask me what your name is I don't even know your name I don't have a history uh, w with you at all uh, here, and uh, and and so um, you know, I, 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 I'm, you're looking for someone who's got a little bit more of a history in that way and that kind of thing. He's just dragging his feet, and now in verse one he comes up with his third excuse, and then Moses answered chapter four, verse one, and he said, as God is calling him to this, he said, uh, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you and so he's saying alright you're telling me to go to speak to the elders of the children of Israel to tell them about your plan what you're going to do and everything and um, uh, Lord I'm I realize you think they're they're gonna be uh, they're gonna believe that you sent me but um, I envision three more likely scenarios uh, to that and number one they're not going to believe that you sent me or number two they're not going to listen to me or number three they're going to think I've made this whole thing up and I'm a liar and I'm a, I'm a deceiver so Moses is here worried about the reaction that that will be the reaction of the elders of Israel that will not be their reaction they will be very excited to hear what Moses has brought to them from the Lord and and uh, like Moses uh, you know uh, we worry about a lot of things that we don't have to worry about 
even in our service uh, to the Lord. And uh, Moses, you're worrying about stuff you don't have to worry about. But if you feel like um, I am sending you to these leaders without credentials, uh, without a proper evidence of the fact that you are being uh, sent by me, then let me give you some credentials that they will, they will recognize then you as a, uh, someone, uh, unmistakable proof that I, I, have, I have sent you. And, and so the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And uh, Moses said, a rod, that is a, a shepherd's uh, staff. And, uh, and the Lord said, cast it on the ground. And so he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent right in front of his eyes. And uh, what did Moses do? did what I would do. He fled from it. I don't know what kind of snake it is. Listen, when you, the, a staff, the staff he's probably got is probably six feet tall. I mean, it's for warding off wolves and animals and all kinds of things in the protection of a flock. I, when I see a six-foot snake, I don't know enough about them to know which one is poisonous or not or anything. They all just look like a snake to me. They look like a danger uh, to me. And he does the same thing. So he runs from it. And, and the Lord stops him and said to Moses, Now, if Moses think, thought it couldn't get worse, it does. The, the Lord said, Reach out your hand and now take... The, the, the snake by the tail. Now, uh, he's fearful of, of the snake to begin with. Uh, and God wants him to pick the snake up. But you would never, ever, if you're interested in not being bitten, you'd never pick a snake up by the tail because they're all muscle and they'll just lunge around and, and, uh, and bite you. So you'd always grab it right behind the head on, on the neck. Well, it's a pretty long neck they got there. But you grab them right behind the head, <laughs> fairly substantial. <laughs> so you get it right behind their head there, and, and you, grab, you never grab it by the, by the tail. And that's what God tells him to do. Now, he's got faith enough uh, to do that. And he reached out his hand, and he caught it, and it became once again a rod uh, in his hand. Now, the miracle... Uh, would have uh, represented more to Moses and, and the children of Israel than sometimes we would realize because we've never, I've never, we've never probably been in, in bondage to the Egyptian. To the Egyptians, uh, the snake, they, they had the snake symbols if you ever get to see old Egyptian things and pictures and things in museums and stuff like that. But the Pharaoh's headdresses that they would wear or in, in his uh, higher kind of cabinet, they would have a head, uh, the band that would be associated with the headdress would always have a serpent there in the front. So it was a symbol of, uh, of Egypt and it symbolized the power and the authority and, uh, and it symbolized life. Um, in Egypt. And uh, so here God is, is communicating that the power and, and the authority uh, of Pharaoh and of, of Egypt will be powerless to hurt uh, Moses. Moses, this, you know the snake is a symbol of Egypt. And uh, even if you were to grab Egypt in what I'm sending you to do, the world's worst way, the most ignorant, most naive, you know, uh, way, they are not going to be able uh, to hurt you for all of their, their power. And it was just communicating to Moses here for his faith that he's empowered with a greater power and a greater authority than Pharaoh has there in, in Egypt. So... Moses, I'm going to confirm my message that I've given you to deliver with accompanying signs and wonders, and this is one of those that I'll do in order to aid the faith of the rulers that you're concerned about won't believe you 
uh, without this kind of thing. And, uh, and, and so, um, that they, again, the reason, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now he gives them a second miracle, a second calling card. And uh, he said, verse 6, Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom, or into the robe of his, uh, into his robe in the area of his chest. And so he put his hand inside there, and, uh, and he put his hand in the bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, white as snow. Incurable disease, uh, today and then, but then they didn't have the ability to rest. The, the prog- progress of of, of the disease and then the Lord said uh, to Moses put your hand back into your bosom so he put it back his hand in his bosom again he drew it again out of his bosom and behold it was restored like other uh, flesh and so what that symbolized now in Egypt uh, was true of, of all of the ancient world but in Egypt uh, leprosy was very very widespread very widespread and uh, and why was it widespread because the gods of the Egyptian were of the Egyptians powerless against it. So here's Moses. He comes on the scene and he, he is, has this demonstration of power by the God that has sent him. And it's another demonstration that this God is more powerful than not only each of the zillions of, of idols and false gods that Egypt uh, worshipped, but greater than all of them uh, put together. And... Uh, and then he gives them a third miracle. He said, then it will be if they don't believe you or heed the message of the first sign and that they, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. But if they don't even believe these two signs, I'm going to give you a third one, uh, then, or listen to your voice, then you shall take water from the river, the Nile, pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. Now, uh, so God says, I'll, I'll give you the ability to turn water from the Nile into to blood as a third uh, miracle if you need that. Now, the Nile was the source of, of the fertility of Egypt, the beauty of, of Egypt, the pro- productivity, a symbol of it, of, of uh, uh, Egypt, and it was considered the lifeblood. So really the, the whole blood system of, of the whole nation. And in fact, they worshiped the Nile as a god. They had deified the Nile uh, at, at this time. And, and so here God is revealing his power to, to dominate the one thing and change the one thing they would not have to want to have dominated or changed, you know, this, this lifeblood and this uh, source of fertility in, in terms of the, the production, the crops, and all of these things. And so when, when they would see, wow, God has the ability to change the Nile, uh, there would be that realization that he would, it, it's foolish to strive against him. He is more powerful than any gods here in, in Egypt. Now the point that God is making to Moses, and it's the same point that he makes to us when he calls us to do something that we realize, uh, this uh, fairly puts us in over our head. Uh, Lord, what you're, you're calling me to, to do here. And the Lord is saying to Moses, I will supernaturally add whatever I need to supernaturally add to your life in order to make you successful, to add to your message in order to make you successful. You don't worry about being successful. 
I'll take care of that. You just worry about being faithful to declare what I, what I want you to declare. Well, uh, having uh, had that objection uh, taken care of, he then moves on to his next one. And then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. You know I'm not a good speaker. And, and neither before nor since uh, you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and I am slow of tongue. So I'm not eloquent um, and, and, I, and I can't speak very well, I can't speak very fast, and I think, I think uh, Lord, you're going to need a smooth talker on this. You're going to need a smooth talker to convince the leaders of the children of Israel <laughs> to do what you're called. You need a little help. And uh, to, get, to convince them to do what you're wanting them to do. And trust me, I was raised for 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh. And uh, you're going to need someone super, super slick to get through uh, that particular group in there. And they're not going to listen to some kind of a guy like me that comes on the scene and just talks like a regular, a regular person now. Now, some people think that Moses had a speech impediment. He could have had a speech impediment. Um, uh, the, the reason I don't believe that is, is uh, Stephen, when he spoke about uh, Moses and all in, in Acts chapter 7, he declared that Moses was powerful uh, in speech. And so a speech impediment is something that you typically have uh, for life. Other people think that what Moses is saying is that he's lost his um, kind of expert grasp on uh, Egyptian. So, you know, you've caught me a little rusty after 40 years on Egyptian and that kind of a thing. And, uh, and so I'm not going to really be the kind of a speaker you're going to want to have uh, in, in there and, and all that. It, it seems uh, more likely, uh, knowing a little bit uh, about Egypt, that he felt he, he lacked the eloquence that was needed to persuade them. Now, see, he, he's, not, he's not thinking in terms of God's going to add at Moses, this is not going to happen because you're a great speaker. You could be the greatest speaker in the whole world, and you are not getting three million people out of Egypt. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hinge on this. And, uh, and, and so, you know, here is, 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 he, is he thinks that's what's needed. God's saying, I'm going to get them out of there. And it doesn't matter what instrument I use. I happen to be choosing you to, to, to use this. All I'm looking for is just someone to speak what I want them to speak. And then I'll confirm the word however I want to. I don't need eloquence. I got, I've got other tricks up my sleeve. And, and we're going to see that he does. All, all Moses has to really do, but he doesn't get it right now. All he has to do is get on the scene and just, even if he talks like this, hey, bro, let God's people go. Somebody would say, I will if you stop talking to me in that way. But No, but, you, you know, you just look and say, how ineffective. And then what does God do? Turn the whole Nile to blood. How's that for an exclamation point after your little speech? It doesn't hinge on that, but that's how he's seeing things, kind of a natural eye. And, and that's how sometimes that, that we, can, uh, we can view it. And, and so often God will call us, you know, to do something that involves speaking, just like he's done with Moses. And we think, um, I, oh boy, wrong, check the address on that telegram. I think you got the wrong place on, on this, this thing. You're looking for someone uh, eloquent. And I think, this, I, I, I think it's, uh, it, it, it breaks my heart today. 
you know, I never, I don't bring it up a lot. I used to all the time in the sermons, you know, about everything that's wrong everywhere, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, but it's 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 a little sad right now in in uh, the incredible pressure in uh, the body of Christ for a certain kind of person that's needed to be successful in in pastoring or teaching the Word of God or doing a lot of different things that might be a little more public than the other things. And I'm kind of glad that God called me into this back when things were a little bit simpler and all. I don't know, you know, the... What's being laid out? You got to do this, and you got to be this, and you got to be half a cheerleader and half a motivator and half of this and half of that and all that kind of thing. And I just think what, what breaks my heart about it is I just think that this has the potential to really crush young people and hinder them from moving in to God's calling on their lives. All that matters is that God calls you. That's all that matters. The calling is everything. And then he's going to make sure that you're successful. But this, this stuff, and, 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 and we think, oh, we've got to be eloquent, we've got to be super educated, we've got to be all, all these things to be successful. We don't. All you need to do is be called. Just obey him. Just obey him. He tells you to do something, take the step out, and obey him. Even the people, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, um, here was a man who possessed eloquence. And, and so there aren't many mighty, there aren't many eloquent and, and good speakers and that kind of a thing. God calls the base things and foolish things uh, of, of the world to confound the wise and all into, into his ministry. But it doesn't mean there are none of those people. The Apostle Paul, and it's a fascinating incident in his life, he goes to Athens and he preaches this sermon on Mars Hill. And it's a tremendous uh, uh, bridge builder into... Uh, the culture of Athens. He makes several references to their culture and, and different things and, and he's very, very uh, uh, relevant and, and very relatable in what he's saying and all those things. A lot of people look at that sermon that he preached on Mars Hill as being a tremendous success and a model for um, how to present the gospel to the Gentile unsaved world. And I'm not saying that there aren't some things to be learned from, from that sermon. But I think Paul ultimately considered it a failure on things because the next city he starts to head to is Corinth. And when he writes his epistle to Corinth, he declares to them, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the wisdom of God. He had already just tried that with, with minimal effect in, in Athens. He said, For I determined, he could have done it, but he, he, he takes his eloquence, he takes his ability, all these things he could have used just to flash, you know, just really make people stunned, you know, at, at his, his eloquence or his knowledge. He said, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And then here it is, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said, I deliberately held back from what I can do in the flesh to, to an audience 
in order that they would not be more greatly impacted by my human ability than, than by the power of God who can take and take a simple vessel who says a simple thing but he just gives supernatural life to it and then what happens? Everybody heads to their cars and they realize God was there tonight. We saw more than a, a man or a woman there tonight. God was there uh, tonight. And that's, that's what God is, is, is uh, looking for. And so, um, and Paul so buried some of this stuff because Corinth really liked orators and they really liked learning and all that kind of stuff. They became frustrated with Paul and he said, you know, his bodily uh, presence is, is weak and his speech is, is contemptible. But Paul did that deliberately. It's not about you and me. It's not about how well we can speak, how comfortable we are in that whole thing. God will take care of that. doesn't mean we won't improve as we do do something. One time um, recently, I had been asked to uh, teach a, a workshop for youth pastors on sermon preparation. I mean, it's that desperate out there. <laughs> so, you know, it's okay. And you prayed about that. You want me to do that. That's great. You know, I have... I have two cents that I can throw in along with everybody else on the thing. But it was interesting. We had it in the Q&A and one guy raised his hand and he's a Moses guy. It's like, you know, and I just, you know, in essence he's saying, I just about die every time I got to get up and do this thing. And, you know, my whole body is affected and, and everything. And, and uh, you know, what do I do? And that kind of, if you're called, do it. I remember the first Bible study I ever uh, taught in a pulpit kind of setting, Calvary Chapel of Napa. The pastor was gone and he asked that I would teach. And, uh, and so I taught. I spent the whole afternoon at Irene M. Elementary School, Irene M. Snow Elementary School in Napa, California, running full court with a basketball, doing layups and shots to try and tire my body out and calm it down. For the Bible study, teaching the Bible study that night. And, I, and it's still the same thing, even to this day. Not on that level, but still it isn't like, oh boy, I get to get up in front of people. It is it's still a hard thing for me to do. Still very conscious of the inadequacy. So I, I talked, uh, I, I asked the girl, I said, how many of you are in that category over here? And, and about half the people raised their, their hand in the room. I said, how many of you, you go up and you start to teach a Bible study? It's like nothing. I mean, you're as comfortable as can be. The other half put their hands up in the room. I hated them. I hated every single one of those, you know, young, young men and, and everything. So, but no matter who we are, they have their own problems. Just want to make that clear. They've got to deal with other things on stuff. But it's not all about us. So he's all paralyzed by, by, by him. Notice what the Lord uh, says to him to respond to this. All right, you get an out. You don't have to obey me in your call on my life. That's not what he does. God said, who made man's mouth? Uh, who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Moses, I know all about your mouth. I know all about how well you speak or you don't speak or anything. I'm talking to you from a bush. I am, I am that I am. <laughs> You're talking to, I know what I'm getting when I get you, and I know what I'm going to have to add to you to make you successful, but, but I'm going to do that. You think I have, oh no, what? Tell me again. You're not eloquent? That wasn't in the file. 
And he knows what he's getting on, on things. He said, now therefore, go. He doesn't take the resignation. And I will be with your mouth, the guarantee of success, and teach you what to say. And circle that what, if God's calling you to speak publicly for him. It is much more important what we say in, in God's calling than how we say it. That's why things are a little flipped around today where the greater emphasis is on the how things are being said rather than the what. It's completely backwards. It puts way too much pressure on people. Don't uh, succumb to it. Well, then the Lord has kind of answered all of Moses' objections here on this and, uh, and, and all of his excuses have been met. So then Moses just says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, please send by your hand of whomever else you may send. He just uh, says, Lord, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Find somebody else. You've met all of my excuses. I don't have any more excuses to you. So let me tell you what's down at the very bottom of my heart. You've, already, you've gotten there is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So go, please, and find somebody else who wants uh, to, to do uh, this. So the command of God, the reassurances uh, of God, the promises of God, not enough for Moses. Moses says, go and find someone other than me for this, this calling. Now, we all understand, or half of us in the room do, Moses' sense of inadequacy on, on this issue. But you can never use that as an excuse to say no to God and what he's calling us to do. Moses crosses a very significant line here. And, and uh, so here he is. We can never let our inadequacy take us to this, this kind of, of a place. I mean, in the natural, we all understand kind of the feeling of wanting to run away from it. And we see the potential to take a step out and end up being a failure, you know, on some big major uh, scene of, 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 of things. But we also need to... Uh, Utterly reject anything in our heart that, that says it's okay to just say no to what God is calling uh, us to do. We belong to Him. What would you and I be doing with our lives tonight if, if they weren't His? Wasting them. Wasting them by the day. Our, our lives have been purchased by Him. They belong to Him. He can spend them however he wants, even if he calls us into something that we feel like we look foolish in. And, and so here, he's, uh, uh, God has excuses, but this now, is, this is more than excuses. This is just pure insubordination. So God will carry on the dialogue for a little while with us, you know, about I want you to do this, and yeah, but, and have you thought about this, God, and the whole thing and all. But when push comes to shove, there has to be a yes from us on it. Otherwise, it's just pure disobedience. And this is where God gets upset. And he gets upset and with this in a way that he wasn't upset with the excuses. Because this is true disobedience or an attempt at it. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So let's make this arrangement. You, now, you will speak to him and put 
the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do and so he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be the as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God alright I, I will work it this way I will speak to you you speak to Aaron and then Aaron will speak it to to the people that we want to direct this um, to now in this situation, Moses, and I do believe that there are two or three different areas in the Bible where we see what is, is clearly a move by the child of God from the perfect will of God into a permissive will of God. Some people don't believe in a perfect and a permissive will of God. But God's perfect will for Moses was that he would alone go forth and perform this ministry that God had called him to. God is, is going to yield on the point in his, in his wisdom and His sovereignty and all. He takes and, and, and He allows now uh, Aaron to be introduced into the situation, but it is not the ideal that He wanted. Now it is Moses is now in at least one fragment of his life in the permissive will of God. And it's going to create some problems because Aaron, as wonderful as he is, he's going to take golden earrings and he's going to make a golden calf and they're going to dance around that calf in various stages of undress and all kinds of things. You know, he's going to lead them into idolatry, some things that wouldn't have happened uh, uh, otherwise. And so here, here though, God yields and says, all right, We'll go ahead and, and uh, we'll let it work this way. And you shall take, verse 17, this rod in your hand with which you shall uh, do the signs. And so Moses went. He returned to Jethro. So the conversation with God at the burning bush ends right there at the end of verse 17. So now he's got his marching orders. He's got them on kind of terms that, that he can at least step forward in. And all God's been very gracious to him. And uh, so he's got this flock now out in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, and uh, his uh, father uh, is is over in what is uh, northwestern um, uh, Saudi Arabia. So he's got to take the flock, return him back uh, to his father-in-law. So he returns to Jethro, his father-in-law, and uh, said to him, "Please let me go and return." to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So in that uh, ancient culture, also very much alive today, in the modern Middle Eastern culture, patriarchal society, the man is the head, whoever is the oldest living kind of man in a family, even if he's 95 and you're 75, he's still the head of the family. You still take major decisions uh, to him and, uh, and get approval for it. So he is respecting his father-in-law by asking for permission, permission to go and to take his family now to do this. Jethro gives him uh, permission and he goes with his blessing. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt. For all the men who sought your life are dead. From when he had killed that Egyptian 40 years earlier, apparently uh, still a bit of a concern uh, to Moses. Am I going to arrive in Cairo or wherever, you know, the city is on things, and uh, these guys are going to remember that I'm the one, and they're going to kill me before I can even open my mouth. And then, and then Moses took his wife and his sons, plural. We, we met Gesh, uh, Gershom earlier, in, in, uh, right after he 
had kind of uh, married Zephorah there, and, uh, but now he's had a second son in, in the course of the 40 years. So he takes his wife, his two sons, set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand, which is uh, in obedience to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these, those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then uh, uh, you shall say to Pharaoh, this, uh, well, let me stop there in in verse 21 because it's significant. Um, something there related to that. So he gives them this, God, the Lord gives Moses uh, kind of revelation uh, about what's going to be forthcoming in his ministry there in, in Egypt. Moses, do the miracles, but you need to know ahead of time, um, you, you're, you're not going to be successful immediately. And uh, so you're going to do all the things I told you to do, and he's not going to go, wow, all right, well, we'll let, we'll let all this slave labor go. Sometimes it's good to know ahead of time, you know, that, no, it's not going to uh, 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 turn out, you, you know, always be just so great and so, uh, you know, obviously successful right at, at the beginning. So Lord, God's just telling them ahead of time, you just keep obeying me. It's not going to look very good for a while, but, but I'm still in this thing. Moses would really need the heads up on that because things are not going to go well on the early stages of things. Notice that the Lord uh, speaks of the fact that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And here uh, the Lord is speaking prophetically that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And as we'll see the account unfold, we're going to see that God does ultimately harden Pharaoh's heart but only after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart over and over and over again during the plagues. At least eight times in verses uh, chapters 7 through 9, we will read of Pharaoh hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart against obeying God. And then at that point, God will step in and he will harden Pharaoh's heart. That is, at a certain point in Pharaoh hardening his heart against God and what God is doing, God will simply confirm him in the decision uh, that, that he has, has made. And in this way, Pharaoh's completely responsible for the choices that, that he made and, and, then all of, uh, and for his rebellion and then all the consequences to his rebellion that, that follow. Now notice he says there in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And so you shall say, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And so Moses is to inform Pharaoh uh, how the Lord God saw the children of Israel. He saw the children of Israel as his firstborn son. I mean, the most prized uh, kind of, 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 of son and, and of of sons, and he is warning Pharaoh that if Pharaoh attempts to deprive God of, of his son, then God will rise up and deprive Pharaoh of his firstborn uh, son. In other words, God is saying to Pharaoh, listen, as important as your son is to you, that's how important these people are to me. You cannot just be killing them. 
You cannot just be beating them to death and working them to death and, and all without me sooner or later rising up and putting a stop to you doing that. And God knows that, Moses, that, that Pharaoh is not going to listen or take God seriously until he reaches all the way in and, and takes uh, his, his firstborn son from him, as well as the land of, of Egypt. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we, when we get to that particular place. But God's saying to him, don't be messing with me. Look at, you've got to understand how I see these people that you're treating the way that you're, you're treating him. I see him the same way that you see your firstborn son. And then it came to pass on the way at the encampment, as they're making their way now uh, to Egypt, that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Wow. That's a rough start. And then Zephora, his wife, took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and cast the foreskin at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So the Lord let Moses go, and then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So here they are. They're making their way to Egypt. And uh, the Lord seeks now to kill Moses, probably striking him in some way physically with some life-threatening uh, illness or, or something. Now, Zephora, she takes, circumcises the one son that apparently hasn't been circumcised and, uh, and, and then uh, uh, throws the, the foreskin at Moses and then, you know, uh, calls him to be a husband of blood to me. Now, evidently, uh, Moses had failed to circumcise one of the two boys. And uh, uh, this was just pure, willful disobedience to God's commandment. God has spoken all the way back, the time of Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And he goes on to speak about it a little bit more and, and concludes... And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So because Moses has willfully disobeyed God's commandment here, God takes him and strikes him with some kind of a life-threatening uh, illness. Somehow, both Moses and Sephora, they know what this is all about. They, they, they know that they have failed to obey God in this particular issue. And when Moses takes this hit in this way, she is very clear on what this is all about and, and what God is, is, is addressing here in, in all, all, of, all of that. Moses' failure to circumcise one of his sons. And now here she is, forced to choose between the death of her husband or the circumcision of her son. So she performs the circumcision. And, and with that obedience, God then releases his judgment off of Moses. Now, it would appear, and there's an important lesson found in all of this, it would appear that Moses' failure to circumcise uh, one of his two sons was due to a conflict with Zipporah. 
over this whole issue. Obviously, she did not like uh, the, the idea of, of circumcision. Interestingly, though, uh, not completely, because the Midianites performed adult male circumcision. So somehow she did not like the fact to be done on a child, on a young, uh, on a young uh, child. So she doesn't like the practice, and somehow she let Moses kind of know that that was the case. At any rate, Moses knew, and, and so he doesn't press the issue uh, with his wife because he just doesn't, he doesn't need the aggravation, he doesn't want the, you know, the conflict that he knew it would, would uh, produce. But it was non-negotiable in God's eyes. It's a command in his, his word. So obedience here was, was not an option. And, and being called by God to become the deliverer of the children of Israel from Egypt is no excuse for being disobedient to God's commandments. No matter what the calling is, nobody's above the word of God. Nobody's above the commands of God, keeping those, those commands. And so here is willful disobedience that he's walking in and somehow he expects that this is going to be okay with God and, and, uh, and, and that God's going to wink at it. And willful disobedience in, in a leader, in the body of Christ, period. But in any leader, you, you can't use, well, it'll create, t- create tension in the marriage, so I'm not going to, to obey that commandment. It'll, it'll be a bat- there'll be a battle over that one. You know, getting that out of the house, wow. You know, that'll be a war on, on things. And, and, and so, but a leader has to lead their home. It's interesting in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he gives the standard for being an elder in the church, he said he must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So the leader needs to be an example in obedience to the Word of God. In, in, in other words, Moses, I am not going to let you lead my people if you think obeying me is optional in, in this relationship. I will not allow you to infect my people with that attitude. It will undo all of the good that I'm wanting to do through your life. If you now model to them that you obey me or not obey me at your pleasure or it, it, uh, it, whenever it's difficult to obey me in a marriage or in a work situation or whatever the thing might be. And so God, he's going to stop this whole thing right at the beginning. You think about that. Look at all the effort he's put into preparing this guy, giving him the promises, worked him through all of these things, ready to launch, and God takes, and he's going to take him out. You've got two to three million people waiting to get out of a bondage that is excruciating. And God said, I will not take them out through that kind of person. I mean, it's just like a gigantic exclamation points after the importance of obedience to God here in, in the situation on things. And obedience here, uh, Moses he's going, wants to be obedient now. He's finally come to the place where he's going to be obedient to God's call and all of these different kinds of things. But he's not being obedient at home. And, and, so, and, and, and so obedience needs to start in the home. It's one of the great lessons of, of the passage. And you know, sometimes that's the hardest place. To lead some other group of 
people, even God's people, there's difficulty in that and trial. But the harder thing, many times, depending on who makes up the household on things, is to hold the line biblically in our homes, especially in this culture. And to say, no, that's the standard. I'm going to stand before God one day on the basis of that standard. And so that's going to be the standard of our home. And you'll fight wars over that. If you have children, you'll fight wars over that in your house. But that needs to be the standard. So the ministry sometimes of other people and outside of the home, many times much easier than uh, what is required at home to keep that uh, in, in place. And uh, it, it would appear that at this particular point there at the end of verse 26 that uh, Zephora and the two sons go back to Jethro. They go back home. Probably Moses sends them back at this point in time because we're not going to see them again until chapter 18 when Jethro brings them out to meet Moses after the, the deliverance of the children of Israel from, from Egypt. And so at this particular point in time they kind of separate away. It's okay with God evidently. The, everyone's right and, and, and obedient before the Lord so now things can go ahead and, and, and move forward. And then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. And so he went and he met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So we don't know how long it's been since these two have seen each other. Maybe as long as 40 years since they have seen one another. So they finally get to see each other. And, uh, you know, Aaron probably didn't vacation out in the Sinai desert, you know, to go out and see his brother and everything. So what's new this year? <laughs> you know, uh, what... Uh, you know, dead snakes or dried out animal heads did you see this year out here? You know, as he's just kind of killing 40 years and all. So they're very excited to see each other. And so Moses then told Aaron all the words that the Lord had uh, spoken to him and had sent him to, uh, with and all the signs which he had commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron together, so he imparts the vision. This is what God has said. This is what we're going to do together now. And then Moses and Aaron went and they gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel and Aaron spoke all the words uh, which the Lord had spoken to Moses uh, then he did the signs in the sight of the people there with the staff and the snake and, and the leprosy and all and here's the response of, of the leaders of the children of Israel the representatives of the children of Israel so the people believed I mean there was just faith alright here is a deliverer God is alive we are getting out of here you imagine how excited they were on, on that? And, uh, and so they, they've got this faith now. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their uh, affliction, then they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They just began to praise the Lord over this good news. Now afterward, Moses and Aaron... We'll see how far we get in this chapter, so relax. And afterward, uh, Moses and Aaron went in and they had a com their first conversation now with, uh, with Pharaoh. And, and so they said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold the feast to me in the wilderness. And uh, that wasn't an unusual request uh, to, be, to be made. And Pharaoh said, Boy, will he live to regret these words. Pharaoh said, 
Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. One of that. <laughs> one of that, Buckaroo. He's, so, but one of the, here's how the, here's how the, um, the Egyptians viewed the Pharaoh. They, they viewed them as divine. Pharaoh thinks he's a god if he believes the hype that he is a god. So he looks at it and says, you know, imagine what he's surrounded by, the beauty of Egypt, the power, look what he looks like and all. And here come these two guys out of a desert. Who knows what they look like? And, and they come out of the desert and they are claiming to represent the god of these Jews. And Pharaoh's thinking to himself, how good of a God and how powerful of a God can this be? A God to two to three million slaves. He's not afraid of this God. And, uh, and so he just, uh, you know, brushes the thing, uh, the thing, thing off and just all of his pride and, and all. Who is he that I should obey? I don't know the Lord. Well, he's going to get to know uh, the Lord. So a lot of arrogance, a lot of pride. And so they then said to him, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And please let us go, they repeat the request, three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work, get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you take them, you make them rest from their labor. So he's, he's thinking economically, uh, we're getting a lot of work out of these people. We're trying to work them to death and all. They keep, you know, having children and all. Uh, we're not going to let this economic boon kind of uh, go from, from our land. And, uh, and so he, he accuses them of... Uh, uh, Moses of distracting now the children of Israel from their work. Oh, you've got a troublemaker here. We've got a union steward. So we've got a troublemaker coming on the scene, and these people, they're just working, they're minding their own business, they seem to be happy enough doing it, and now you're here, and you're going to create some trouble for us here. And, and so that's, that's how he uh, sees it. Uh, you're, you're distracting them from their work. And so the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, the uh, Egyptian taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give uh, the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And, but at the same time, you shall lay on them the same quota of bricks that they need to make every day as before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, their cry, uh, they cry out, let us, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on uh, the men that they may labor in it, and let, not, let them not regard false words. And uh, so he said, Moses, if they can be listening to you and talking about going out and worshiping God for three days, if they think they got three days, you know, uh, to spare to do this kind of thing, if they even think they have time to think about something other than work, then they're idle, and, and what I'm going to do is just raise the, the bar on all of this. I'll keep them too busy to even think about serving uh, God. I'll make it so they don't have any energy to serve God. 
And, and so he makes the command. No straw. Apparently the Egyptians had been supplying straw to the children of Israel to mix in with the brick. We don't really know exactly why. I mean, there's probably a couple of different reasons, but... The straw probably added some strength to the brick. They'd make the brick from the clay out of the Nile. So it would be like a reinforcement in, into uh, the, the uh, mud bricks or the clay bricks. Another uh, element of it and, uh, that uh, is probably also very significant is there, uh, people believe that the uh, straw in the brick allowed them to make the bricks, put them in the molds. You know if you've ever seen them do it, the molds, and then they flatten them down. And then they take the wooden molds and they shake them off and they move them over here. And then they do and they just keep moving like this. And it was the straw in the brick that allowed them to take the mold on and off quickly without ruining the brick. So now if you take that out of the brick, when they're removing them, not only do they have to go out and get the straw now, their own straw take more time uh, that was being supplied to them, but now they're marring the bricks as they're, they're taking them out. And so he says, don't supply them with any more straw. I want the same amount of bricks every single day. The problem is, is that they're already redlining. They are already doing what, they, they're already at the impossible level physically for what they can do and now this demand of, of Pharaoh puts them over into the impossible uh, range on things and so they uh, uh, um, so th this creates a tremendous uh, problem for them now one of the interesting things is um, in the excavations of, of uh, the Egyptian city Pithom uh, they have actually, as they've, uh, you know, gone in and dug in and all, they have found uh, the layers within the city where the bricks are with, have ample straw in them. And then the next layer just has kind of um, uh, strap straw and whatever they could kind of come up with in that layer. And then the next layer up, no straw in it at all. You know, just as, as the biblical account uh, laid, laid out. So this is how, uh, you know, Pharaoh responds to the whole thing. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers, they went out and they spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get uh, yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. Now this is the first they've heard of it. Moses and Aaron knew about it because they talked with Pharaoh. Now the news comes to the people. And so, I mean, there's so much um, emotion to me in, in verse 12. Can you imagine what that did to them? You know, I, am, I, I can barely make it home at the end of the day to get enough to eat and to rest to start this whole thing the next day where we are now. And now you're going to demand this of us. And so the people were scattered abroad everywhere throughout the land of Egypt trying to find stubble instead of straw. They had no hope of finding straw that was being supplied to them. Now they just want to find some stubble. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry saying, Fill your, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. And also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten, and uh, were beaten, and were asked, "Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday uh, and today as before?" And so now 
uh, now they're starting to enforce this thing. They're not able to make as many bricks, and now they're starting to be uh, beaten, bear physical consequences as if things weren't worse enough because Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. That's how they're going to see it. And when the children, the officers of the children of Israel came, they, they now get an audience with Pharaoh and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? What are you doing to us? He said, There is no straw given to your servants, and they say, Make brick, and indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. And they're, they're saying to Pharaoh, you're, you're asking the impossible of us in this. And he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now they get what's going on. And therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. And then, they, then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. I bet it was quite awkward. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us to stink or abhorrent in the sight of uh, Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So when Moses and Aaron go in and they meet with Pharaoh, Pharaoh kind of ratchets things up here, makes things more difficult. They, the leaders of the children of Israel, they jettison Moses and Aaron. They go straight to Pharaoh, and, and they want to start to deal with him now uh, on their own, restore the relationship. Uh, you know, they're in just damage control. Whatever, whatever Moses and Aaron did to you and, and whatever you heard and all, we want to go back to the old way of us talking to you and, and all. And then Moses and Aaron give them credit as good leaders because they meet with the people, the leaders as they leave uh, Pharaoh. They're not hiding or anything like that. And it's a very difficult situation for everyone involved. And, and they confront Moses and Aaron. I mean, they really say some strong things. The Lord judge you. I mean, you have, you claim to represent God. We're calling on God to judge you for what you've done to us. You've only made things worse here. Now, you, you, you know, you, it, it, before, uh, you know, they were working us to death, but now you've given them an excuse to take a sword and just to kill us with, with the sword. Some deliverer you are, you know. I mean, um, if this is a deliverer, who needs enemies kind of a you know, thing on, on the deal. And Moses at this point, the people have hit rock bottom. And Moses and his ministry, I mean, he has to hit rock bottom here. I mean, nothing has turned out the way that he, he thought that it would. And a lot of times it works out that way. He's right in the middle of God's will. And it gets a lot worse before it gets better. Even in situations sometimes where God is involved. So don't quit that ministry. Don't quit that marriage. Don't quit that situation that God has called you to be a witness for Him in just because it's gotten unbelievably difficult. It works that way. A lot of times it works, it works that way. So what does Moses do? What do you do in a situation like that? You go back to God. Help! <laughs> you ever pray like that? I know I'm not the only one. Say, Lord! I, mean, I can't tell you how many times through the years 
go to the Lord and say, Lord, what in the world is happening in this church here? I mean, look at the, this thing and that thing and, and the whole deal. And now I'm confused. I thought I heard you and I'm obeying you on the deal. And look at the fire that started, you know, kind of. A, and what do you got to do? You got to go back to him. Got to go back to him. And that's what he does. There are some situations in life. I know you know this. There's some situations in life, many situations, where we must, in our service to the Lord, we must hear God. No other voice. No other voice will work. No other ten voices of your peers or highly esteemed people. Their voice is not adequate to rest or, or produce peace in us given the, the difficulty that we find ourselves in. We must hear from the throne of God that we're right, that we're doing the right thing, and we need that reassurance. And so that's what he goes to. And he said, he's honest as can be, he said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? He's not accusing God of wrongdoing. He's just saying, Lord, I'm obeying you, but this is making, I hope you're watching, this is making things a lot harder on these people. Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this uh, people, and neither have you delivered your people at all. Lord, I... I, I just want to tell you, and, and I don't think Moses is telling God like an informing prayer. Like, God, I'm sure you, you've missed it, so I'm going to inform you about all the, of, of what's happened in the light of, of your commandments. I think he, he's just processing this whole thing with the Lord. Lord, I've only succeeded in making Pharaoh mad. You haven't delivered the people like you promised. Lord, now they're really, really upset with me. I understand it. I understand why they're upset. And I'm just a little bit confused at the moment in terms of, of how this whole thing is, is working. And God has an answer uh, for that when he speaks uh, to Moses, as we'll pick it up next week in chapter 6. And let's, we'll head one verse into it. He says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. You have seen what Pharaoh can do to a bunch of slaves. You saw that. I wanted you to see that. But now you're going to see what Yahweh, the true and the living God, can do to Pharaoh. Yeah, he's got power. Yeah, he likes to flex his muscles. Yeah, he's made things miserable. But all you've seen is what he can do. Now, put that ramp down on that roller coaster ride, because now you're going to see what it is that I can do. And he's going to flex his strong right arm and and he's going to get Pharaoh's attention. But sometimes the Lord will let the situation get to kind of that place before he interjects now, and we now get to see the fullness of his power in, in the situation. So, uh, you know, in, so often these early stages of service to the Lord, wow, sometimes you, we can hit our hardest trials right at the beginning. Sometimes we're just like in a bubble. God just, everything's just good and easy and wow, and it's just going the honeymoon period of, of serving the Lord and, and those kinds of things. And then sometimes it can be just like this. Don't quit if the first step, your first step out in serving the Lord ends up looking like, wow, this really confuses me. Uh, that's not a good enough reason to stop. It's a good reason to 
pray. To re-seek the Lord and say, I'm not understanding this and getting this. What do you want to speak to me? But he may not explain himself either. So what do you do? You stick with what you heard him say to you last. And if he has any new news or change, then he will let us know. But we go back to Bethel. We go back to where we heard God last and, and hold on to wait to see what he does next. Let's stand together and we'll pray.